Take Me or Leave Me, a podcast about the fine line between success and failure in musical theatre. Very sorry it's been so long since our last episode, but you'll be glad to know that I'm on a roll now, and so you'll have them relatively regularly going forward. So this is our first series, it's called The Hitmakers, uh, and we explore the lesser-known musicals of some of the biggest names in theatre. I'm sorry, I'm your host. In each episode, I'm joined by another lover of musicals. In this episode, I am joined by my lifelong friend and set designer extraordinaire, Kate Holstead. Hello. Hi. Hi. For a moment there, I thought you were going to say life partner. Life partner. I wish. Uh, I'm going very hard on the ends of my words today. I hope that calms down for later. So I've got two questions for you starting off, just to test you. What's your favourite musical? Oh, my God. I mean, no, can't do that. No, you I know don't. the answer, and I feel robbed because Fran mentioned it last week. I'm a big Spring Awakening fan. It moved me. Um, other favorite musicals, Blood Brothers. That's my answer. I. That's what I was expecting you to say. Right. And so my second question is, in terms of success and failure, what do you think a musical needs to be a success? Well, this. I pre-prepared this answer because I knew it was coming and I didn't know you were going to ask me about my favourite musical. I know, sorry. Because I did some homework for this, Zoe, because I know you like a preparation. Because I don't like what I deem successful musicals, I don't know, it's personal taste. It's like reading a book, you bring it into your home and it resonates with you for whatever reason. I guess that's my answer, but I guess it's also a cop-out, maybe a bit of a hippie answer. Um, I like it. a personal account. So... I read an article in Forbes magazine, which I obviously read religiously, and they had an article about a new book, which is about flop musicals. And do you know the percentage of musicals on Broadway that close at a financial loss? Pretty much all of them. Correct. It's 80%. Ding, ding, ding. You get a prize. Yeah, it's 80%, which is mental. So I think it was just... I was thinking it's important to say, like, when we talk about these shows here, these shows aren't the anomaly. These shows are the norm. And actually, all those famous music, the Hamiltons and the West Side Stories of this world, those are the weird ones. Okay, so this episode, we are talking about the American choreographer and director, Michael Bennett. Uh, Who? Oh, I thought you said Alan Bennett. Uh, Oops. Oh, my research is about. Uh, Why hasn't Alan Bennett written a musical? Has he no, he hasn't. It was singing in History Boys. History Boys had singing. Yeah, I was going to say. <gasps> That'd be a musical. Hugh Kate singing the History Boys. Michael Bennett is best known as the creator and director of A Chorus Line and uh, the original director of both Dreamgirls and Follies. During his relatively short career, he won seven Tony Awards for direction and choreography, which is only one less than Stephen Sondheim, who is now 90. Bennett died when he was 44, I think he was. So Bennett was regarded as the next Jerome Robbins and a contemporary of Bob Fosse. Have you heard about Michael Bennett? Are you a fan of Michael Bennett? Could you not give a fuck about Michael Bennett? Me? Yeah, that was a joke based on a line from Chorus Line. So that shows you how big a fan of Michael Bennett I am. First of all, let's get one thing straight. I never heard of the red shoes. I never saw the red shoes. I don't give a shit about the red shoes. I can't tell if you just wanted to quote that. And you wanted to, no, that was a genuine question as well. 
I am a fan. Hadn't heard of many of them, but I think that could be said about most musical directors. Of course, I'm obviously, we both know I have a difficult relationship with um, chorus lines. I was painting a chorus line set, and they had a lovely gloss tap floor that we had to install in the theatre. And on the last day of painting, I fell face first, and I got this incredible, like, Eve Klein black print of this horrible gloss paint and they had to wait for it to dry and sand it back and I had to go home on the northern line with this sort of horribly imprinted all over paint and anyway funny funny enough I don't do scenic painting anymore and funny enough I didn't get invited back frankly it scarred me but Dreamgirls who doesn't love it Dreamgirls curtain I know that's a personal favorite of yours it is uh the gorgeous uh Robert Wagner so we're going to talk about three shows. We're going to talk about A Joyful Noise, musical lyrics by Oscar Brand and Paul Nassau, book by Edward Paldola. Let's, I'm never going to mention yeah. him again. So uh, Seesaw, music by Cy Coleman, lyrics by Dorothy Fields, and book by Michael Bennett. And Ballroom, music by Billy Goldberg, lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and book by Jerome Cass. So a little bit of background. Michael Bennett started out as a dancer, as many choreographers do. Uh, he was cast as Baby John in West Side Story for the US and European tour in 1959 when he was just 16, which is offensive, I think. I don't think it should be allowed to succeed that young. Uh, from there, he danced in various 60s Broadway musicals and he also danced on a 60s version of Top of the Pops, which was called Hullabaloo. Oh. But the 60s fun, which is where he met Donna McKechnie, who was his muse, close friend. She was the original Carrie in a chorus line. And for three months, she got to be Bennett's wife. I was say, that's a surprise. Yes. It For is. everyone. I believe many friends thought so too. <laughs> um, so the first show we're going to talk about is A Joyful Noise, which was Bennett's first ever choreography credit. So the musical is based on a novel called The Insolent Breed. So I think the first plus point has to be that they changed the title. Catchy. No one wants to see that musical. From what I could gather, which was not much, the plot centred on a small religious Tennessee town, which is turned on its head with the arrival of a wandering Mitchell called Shade Motley. Now, we'll see more of this coming up, but the 60s and 70s were rife for, frankly astounding character names they're not real names i don't know anyone and i don't know if it was influenced by people but you know everyone's made up so of course all the women of the town immediately fancy shade motley jenny lee falls head over heels in love however awkward jenny is engaged to the local minister brother lock so that's a spanner in the works shade motley gives jenny lee a locket but that's too much for jenny's dad walter wishenant I wish I was making these up, guys, but I'm not. So he tells Shade Motley to leave town. Because first comes jewellery and then next stage is orgies. I'm pretty sure that's how that goes. Just at that moment, entrepreneur Bliss Not a Stanley. name. Not a name. I like it. I mean, not a name. Maybe it's quite forward thinking. They're all quite gender neutral. They're like, anyone can Nick be this Steve. character. So he says, it's a he, so they're, they're, they weren't that gender neutral uh he says he could help shade in the religious town becoming a, a big time star so shade motley leaves town jenny lee marries brother Locke, and then years later shade returns for a visit with another star called mary texas 
who on Wikipedia is described as an extrovert blonde. And then that's it. I don't know how it ends. I couldn't find out. I couldn't find out for you how it ends. We know how it ends, Zoe. Yeah. Because it's a thousand stories told over. But basically that, what I described is just the plot of Act 1. Act 2 starts with them arriving in the town. So I'm like, is Act 2 just... And I think it is. I think Act 2 is mainly just singing and dancing. And that's it. I know that sounds stupid because all musicals are just singing and dancing. But I just mean singing and dancing with no plot. Just singing and dancing. But maybe that's better than the plot that we had. Maybe you had to have a few fillers. Because from reading the bits that we could find, it just sounded like, is it Mr. Hakim in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. No, it's just that. It's just that little plot line with the Persian hello and the Oklahoma goodbye, all those things. It's just that. And they've extended, they've gone, I know, I like that song in that other successful musical. Yeah. We'll run with this. I mean, like, it makes me yearn for the plot of chess, which is overly complicated, because just like, this is so simple, it's painful. And I was really researching, trying to find some critic who had been like, ah, yes, but we all, as we all know, it's a metaphor for so-and-so. And And I was like, oh, no, it's just a musical romance about the joys of country music. Brings us on to my question of, would you put your money into it just on plot alone? Funnily enough, no. It's going to be a hard I, no from me. It's going to be a, I'm out. It just feels, ooh, I don't know. But I sort of know what you mean by just that silence. <laughs> it was awful though. It was awful. <laughs> um, a joyful noise starts off in an awkward place because both the writers, Oscar Brand and Paul Nassau's, their last Broadway show, which is called The Education of Hyman Kaplan, but Hyman Kaplan is spelt entirely in capitals and has an asterisk between each letter. Ooh. Somebody should have been like, we can't put that on a marquee. It's too big and has too many punctuation things in it. Nine asterisks. No, that's too much. So that ran for 29 performances on Broadway. So that had already been a flop. A Joyful Noise is also one of those shows that we see quite a lot, which went through a whole load of complicated production team changes. So this is roughly the history of it. The musical book was originally written by the producer of the show. So then it was rewritten. The writer who rewrote it took over from the director. So when the writer became the director, the producer, who was the original writer, uh, so the second director left, who was the writer of the book, and the producer, who was the original writer of the book, took over from that director with the help of Bennett, who was the choreographer. And the cast was no better. Various performers were being replaced between the out-of-town tryouts and Broadway, including Bennett's best friend, Donna McKickney. She was given the chop. Um, But casting a joyful noise wasn't a disaster in all ways. Bennett, throughout his career, worked with many of the same artists. Um, His choreographic partner, Bob Avian, worked with him on nearly every project he did apart from this one so maybe that's it maybe you need the the power of Bob Avian so A Joyful Noise was no different he cast by Ork Lee a dancer who would work with him on various projects including originating a a role in A Chorus Line but it also discovered a lifelong collaborator in the audition room of A Joyful Noise A Joyful Nose that'd be a different show I'd maybe watch that one which was Tommy Tune all six foot six of him Please just go watch Tommy Tune dance because it's just very impressive. The story goes that Tune was auditioning for Caesar's Palace in the same building that the Joyful Noise audition is were taking place in. And he, what, and he got lost? <laughs> no, uh, he got the job at Caesar's Palace. And then when he was heading down in the lift, 
Bennett was like, you don't want to do that job. That's like, that's lame. That's not art. Come in and see my choreography for A Joyful Noise. And Tommy Tune was so impressed with this choreography that he turned down his big paycheck in Vegas to do A Joyful Noise. What a mistake he's, to make her. He's going to regret that one. Obviously, we talked a bit about that we have a clip coming up from the show. Now, A Joyful Noise does have an original Broadway cast recording of it. However, it's only available in vinyl that I could find, and it costs £96 on eBay. So I enjoy making this podcast, but I ain't got that kind of show budget. I have, however, found this very grainy clip of the opening song of Act 2. So we could all have a listen to that. Do we have to? Or... <laughs> okay, play it. Oh. So this is I Love Nashville, sung by Karen Morrow and the original Broadway cast of A Joyful Noise. I'm in love with it's like all those yeah western musicals rolled into one rolled into the 60s so yeah i mean like i say we can't make huge sweeping statements that it was all terrible because we've only heard that one song but that one song is not the best song i've ever heard let's put it like that so the out of town tryouts went okay but after relatively friendly audiences the show started to lose focus and opinions began flying around oh opinions we hate those people were saying john Raitt, who was the leading man was too old uh, if you look at the playbill cover i would agree with that opinion donna mckechnie wasn't right the plot was saccharine the mark helliger theater was going to be too big so all anyone was sure about was that A Joyful Noise had incredible dances. A Joyful Noise opened on December 15th, 1966 and closed nine performances later on Christmas Eve. The reviews came in praising the singing and the choreography and damning pretty much everything else, especially the story. But Bennett now had a reputation as a Broadway fixer, which I think is interesting seeing as the show still flopped, but people were like, I guess it would have flopped a lot harder if it weren't for Michael Bennett. So he became the person you would call when your show was in trouble. He worked incredibly fast, so he could take a lacklustre song and by the next day have turned it into a crowd-pleasing number. After it closed on Broadway, Bennett was nominated for his first Tony Award for Best Choreography. When I was reading about Michael Bennett, lots of people describe him that he has this very confident slash arrogant way of being. Um, And somebody described it as arrogant brilliance. So I think a good story that demonstrates that is the way he describes his nomination. So Bennett's main competition for Best Choreography was Ron Field, who was nominated for Cabaret. Bennett went to suss out his competition and Cabaret happened to be playing at the theatre next door to A Joyful Noise. So Bennett slipped in during a performance to watch from the wings and he says, I thought Cabaret's dances were just wonderful. I waited around, Ronnie came and I walked up to him and said, darling, the tone is yours. Don't think another thing about it. And I just love that confidence about him that this brand new choreographer who's never choreographed anything in his life would go over to the seasoned choreographer and say, 
well done. You deserve this award. Don't lose sleep over me not winning. Well, maybe that's why he was such a fixer. There's that lovely blind confidence of, I've got this. So for me, this is just like a cheesy show, which just didn't warrant a Broadway run. I felt like they should have closed it out of town. And also it should, it is worth saying that this time on Broadway, so sort of the late 60s to the early 70s, is just flop after flop after flop. There's so many Broadway flops in that time period, more than there are successes. There's a, a really good adage. They say it in terms of period drama. You can tell more about a period drama about the period it was made in, not the period they're trying to depict. And I think actually that can be said for a lot of the 60s and 70s. There was a, a real uh, consciousness of trying to keep it contemporary. It was a weird time as well as it's like it's this sort of crossover from the golden age of musicals, which is all the big Oklahomas, West Side Stories, Rogers and Hammerstein, all that jazz, to the concept musical of like Sun Time and yeah. Candor and Ebb and those people. So it's like this weird in-between time where when you look at a lot of the Tony years, I'm like, I don't know any of those shows <laughs> for best musical. You're like, but marry me, sweetheart, nighttime time. <laughs> like, I don't know what those shows Even that are. they were nominated. Like the fact that the, he had a nomination so early on. And like, there is a tiny bit of footage of his choreography for it. Oh, there is. If you if you are interested in a joyful noise, there is a clog dance. I mean, who wouldn't want that in a musical? It is available on YouTube. And it's uh, very 60s meets uh, Seven Brides Seven Brothers barn dance vibe. I'm going to plow on through here. I'd like, apologies to the one listener. We've oh, I've got a passion. How dare you! Oh, I like it. I think it sounded Love like a good singing, obviously. A good review of a joyful noise. Oh, yeah. Morris is not a joyful noise. <laughs> that was a joyful noise. Uh, he then directly did another flop after that called Henry Sweet Henry. So there were a bit of a toss up between those two, which ones we thought it was better to talk about. But he kept fixing shows. And eventually, after a couple of rocky ones, uh, Bennett came across a hit. He was the choreographer on the Burt Bacharach musical, Promises, Promises, which included the show-stopping number, Turkey Lurkey Time. Book writer Neil Simon said this about the number's birth during the out-of-town tryouts. He said, We were having some problems at the end of the first act. There was a lot of discussion about what needed to be done. The usual give and take. Michael was looking like this kid on a college football team sitting on the bench. He looked like he was saying, give me a chance, give me a chance, give me a chance. When we agreed to give him a chance, his eyes went wide and he went to work like a shot. And the turkey lurkey number didn't just solve the problem. It was also a sensation. He was fearless. Also, sidebar, the first time I came across turkey lurkey time and a relatively decent version of Bennett's choreography was in the film Camp. Have you not seen Camp, Kate? No. <gasps> well, if you haven't seen it, one, what have you been doing with your life? Can't believe you haven't seen this 2000s teen film. Two, as soon as this podcast is over, go and watch it. And all I will say is 14-year-old Anna Kendrick singing Ladies Who Lunch from Company. It's Sorry. about uh, a musical theatre summer camp in America. Oh, of course. Camp. Okay. I'm back on team. Anyway, 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 detour, detour. Bennett finally had a long-running hit. And then he took the sort of sidestep of choreographing what was going to be the hit show of the season, Coco, 
which is a musical about the life of Coco Chanel starring Catherine Hepburn. Uh, So it had all the hype around it, but it could sort of have been included in this episode because although it was a financial, it financially was okay because Hepburn managed to keep it running. She was no musical theatre star, mainly due to the fact that she couldn't sing and she couldn't dance. I know, songbird. But she's beautiful. Awkward, but she's wildly talented. Very good actor. Uh, There's a a good story when Coco Chanel was told that Catherine Hepburn was playing her on Broadway in a musical. She went, oh, I love her in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And everyone was like, that's not a different Hepburn, but okay. Maybe that's best. Then Bennett moved from that to a winning combination of he choreographed both Follies and Company for Stephen Sondheim and director Hal Prince. Company he just choreographed and then Follies he co-directed as well with Hal Prince. From these shows we start to see the sort of personality that Michael Bennett has which some people that he works with are willing to sort of forgive and write off as the sort of antics that you get from like a true genius and others they couldn't see past. In company, there's stories of ranting, yelling, throwing chairs, all under the excuse of trying to get the best performance out of these non-dancers, because company was mainly made up of actor-singers, and no one was a hoofer. A what? A hoofer. Not a hooker. I I feel like that's a word. Maybe I've made that up. I hope it's a word. Trademarked. Michael Bennett and Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince were very different types of people with very different ways of working. It was sort of cerebral from Sondheim and Prince versus intuitive from Bennett. So I found a quote from Hal Prince basically accusing Bennett of not reading enough, which uh, so much so that Prince bought him a dictionary as his first night present, which I think is quite a dick move. Like, Yeah, that's, that's a nice little... In the quote, he's like, me. Michael Bennett thought it was a joke, but I was deadly serious. They, they did enjoy working together and they sort of understood each other. A lot of the memories from company, despite Bennett throwing chairs, are surprisingly lovely. Um, Bennett was nearly 15 years younger than the other members of the production team. Bob Avian said... Michael would make all these incredible suggestions and I'd think, how does he know all that stuff? Where does it come from? I mean, it was like he had this unbelievable knowledge, except it wasn't learned, it was innate with him, intuitive. Here he was with these heavyweights handling himself with such assurance. Here he was from day one proving himself. That gut instinct would win Bennett his first two Tony Awards, but it wasn't plain sailing to the award ceremony. Prince and Bennett would fall out over Follies and Bennett would never work with either Prince or Sondheim again. When Follies opened out of town, it was quite well received, but Bennett saw quite big problems with it and Prince didn't agree. And Prince's argument was that although they're co-directors, how Prince was also the producer. So his say was more important than Michael Bennett's. Do you think also age, if he's considered part of the creative team and quite young, then go into those sort of positions, into those meetings. I yeah. wonder how much that was held against him. I definitely it wasn't arrogance. It's just the fact that it's been played out as that. I definitely think that. I think Prince sort of saw himself as a kind of mentor to Bennett, so therefore felt like he yeah. can be like, no, I know better. I've done more shows. They didn't speak for nearly ten years 
after Follies. Oh, and eventually they did speak. Prince offered him some advice. So I think he's still in that place where he's like, yeah. let me tell you, Sonny, even though he's now like 40. <laughs> he says, when are you going to realise a show is a show is a show? And then there's another show where that came from and that life is not your last show. And although I think how Prince is a bit patronising to Michael Bennett, I do think that's quite truthful because theatre was Michael Bennett's life. I think that's why I personally really love his work because he creates such incredible backstage musicals. He said of himself once he'd done Follies and A Chorus Line, I think I'm now the king of backstage musicals. And you know what? I like it. I hate being typecast, but I realise people are happier when I'm doing backstage musicals. And the truth is, I am too. And I think he does them so well because he can merge that, the humanity of it with the sort of faded sparkle rather than sometimes backstage musicals really fail because they're too glitzy. Also, they're too staged. Though. Yeah. Fight with Prince meant that Bennett was now determined never to let someone else lead a show. So from here on out, he was only going to be a solo director choreographer rather than a choreographer to someone else. So this brings us to our next show. Which also, sorry, I love. I love that we were saying before, like the confidence of being a creative, taking hold of a musical. It yeah. makes a whole different, uh, coming at it from a whole different angle and incredibly exciting. And yeah. um, especially for choreographers to be directors. I mean, you can tell it throughout. His, it's integral to the shows themselves. They're not, you can joke that the tap, like he does, he does a wonderful tap break. The equivalent of like a weighted pause. It's very good. So yeah, he was 30 when he started working on the next show we're going to talk about, which is Seesaw. I know, so depressing. So he'd already won three Tonys by the age of 30. So Seesaw would be the first solo Michael Bennett project. So Seesaw is based on a two-hander play by William Gibson called Two for the Seesaw. Which I love, and the incredible film, the Shirley MacLaine. Yes, so the original play ran for 750 performances and was a star vehicle for Henry Fonda and Anne Bancroft, which was in 1958. And then the film came out in 63, something like that, about five years later. Then Seesaw the Musical was in 73. So it's one of those things where it's not like hot on the heels of a really popular play, but it's not that far away either that people don't know about it. So it's in that sort of weird middle ground. I've always found this a weird thing as well. If you take a successful play or film and turn it into a musical so if you're taking it because you're just riding on the success of it or are you taking it because you feel like you have something additional to add hairspray was a sensational film and then it created the beast of a different musical but it made sense for it to take that path same with blood brothers in terms of seesaw i don't quite know what they were thinking because obviously the strange thing about it is two for the seesaw is a two-hander which is obviously quite a strange thing to turn into a musical. Not that there aren't two-hander musicals, but maybe not in 1973. The music was written by Cy Coleman with lyrics by Dorothy Fields, who are the team behind Sweet Charity. So the original book was written by Michael Stewart, who was the book writer for both Bye Bye Birdie and Hello Dolly. Bye Bye and Hello. A creative team like that, which is obviously like a very impressive one, was no guarantee of success in the early 70s. In the 1972-73 Broadway season, so that was the season preceding the season Seesaw was in, the 58 productions that opened, 35 failed, including a show called Dude, uh, which was written by the team. Back for episode five. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find enough on that one. Dude, which was written by the team behind Hair which ran for 16 performances and lost $746,000. Wow. 
uh, there was a good quote that I found. So Kevin Kelly, who is Michael Bennett's biographer, says, the lure lures on, which I like. I, I like that idea that nothing will stop people thinking that they won't be that Broadway show. They're always going to be the show. You have to think about that. Otherwise, why would you do anything? You wouldn't, oh, exactly. you wouldn't move. But I love it. I love, I love the blind optimism of theatre. So Seesaw is the story of a brief affair between Midwest buttoned-up lawyer Jerry Ryan. We get some good names in this one as well, by the way, guys. Don't worry. And kooky New Yorker Gittel Mosca. Oh. Kooky. Coo- the word kooky. Coo- oh, I, I, that's why I was going I was going to talk to you about that. I was going to talk to you about the offensive it. word kooky, where they're like, what's, what was that term that someone came up with? Manic pixie dream girl about films that oh. are like those girls yeah. who are like, oh, it's so weird. And I like to have like berets and <laughs> keep all my drink uh, eternal my sunshine of the spotless mind. And yeah. Anything oh, with Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I was going to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> Gittel Mosca is a dancer. That's another important key point so the original stage play like we said was a two-hander and that took place mainly on the telephone which again is a weird theater thing <laughs> have you ever seen that um oh hello sketch where they do the uh teaching you how to do the one-sided telephone call ah the one-sided phone call this is very good this is when a character makes a phone call but they do it in a very stagey way where they repeat the phone call information to the other characters First, get a telephone no one would have in real life. Oh, hello. <laughs> then, please, do way too much business with the phone. Really show the audience you've been working with the prop all week. <laughs> and then, ladies and gentlemen, a one-sided phone call. Ravi, a melodramatic wash, please. Oh, hello. Well, John, I'm sure. The police? That's who you are. <laughs> the thing that the musical had to do was find a way of adding more people. So in the musical, Jerry and Gittel go through New York City and uh-huh. meet various New York people, uh, which include some sex workers on 8th Avenue and a travelling group of actors performing Hamlet in Puerto Rican. You sent me the link for the songs, Zoe. And I have to say, <laughs> as one of my dearest friends, I love you a little bit less for making me sit through the song Spanglish. Spanglish is a really terrible song. So yeah, but despite the magic of New York City, Jerry and Gittle are too different and they break up. But they feel like they've learnt about themselves and their emotional hang-ups. I read, I, I read that somewhere, I didn't write that. Um, so how do we feel about it, just off plot, just off idea? I have seen the film. I know, you did so well, I didn't do that. I love a Shirley MacLaine. It's a really lovely story. It's a great plot. I fully buy into that. Again, it's that satellite songs to the mute. They don't add anything. They just get chosen because, oh, she, she's a dancer. This is perfect for Michael Bennett because he can do things with it. I this story's happening and then New York sort of randomly bursts into song. I'll go into more detail about it, but we get the impression that the original book writer wrote something very, very, very different from the end result that we get. So reading about the play to the seesaw, I think if this was a musical like a sort of last five years type thing, I think it could be really delightful and lovely. Like if it was a little two hand. Uh... It doesn't need to be a big show. I think no. that's the other thing. Like it's really beautiful because it's about two people, and they and they do find 
out about themselves. And it was interesting. I rewatched the film with the songs. And I mean, I'm sure there are differences. But it was interesting trying to work out when a song yeah. would fit in. But I think what's interesting is it obviously became the Michael Bennett show rather than starting out as a vehicle for him because he wasn't the original director. He was brought yeah. on. So he made it work for him. I think he forced it to work for him. Bit of info before he got involved. The original director before the out-of-town tryouts in Detroit was a man called Edwin Sherin. So Sherin, from my research, has only di- had only directed two straight plays before he took on Seesaw. One of which was called An Evening with Richard Nixon, which was written by Gore Vidal. Which Are you sure it's not a musical? That <laughs> would be a gripping one. It, it, sound, it sounds great. It ran for 16 performances. Uh, so frankly, I imagine it was as riveting as it sounds. And that's all I could find out about him. The producers weren't happy with the show during the out-of-town tryouts. There was a lot of money on the line, so they weren't happy to continue with how it was and for it not to improve greatly. By the time they got to the Fisher Theatre in Detroit, producers Joe Kipnis and Larry Kasher had put in nearly $1 million into the production, which in 1973 is insane. Like, And where did it go? Well, this is the thing. Like, oof. Yeah. I'd love to know what Michael Bennett's, like, fixing fee was. Well, apparently the original budget... The emergency was- services. What does he... What, <laughs> what's his call-out fee? But apparently he was very bad with money. Bob Avian said of all the things they fixed, he just never saw money coming in. I think he must have taken a lot of profit points. There's a more technical name for those. I can't remember what it is. But I think that must have been what he did because he was relying on these shows to become long runners and they weren't. So I think he didn't make a lot of money during this time. And then when he did make money, he spent it quite quickly. Kipnis and Kasha called Bennett and asked him to come to Detroit to see the show. But as I said, Bennett had no desire to be a fixer anymore, so he wasn't interested. Now, the producer Joe Kipnis had a nickname in Broadway, and his nickname was Crying Joe, because uh, he had a tendency to burst into tears when his shows ran into trouble. Uh, and Positive was, or negative? No, because it's like, oh yeah, he was so upset that his shows oh, okay. were doing badly, he would cry. Toddler tantrums. Yeah. Uh, so it was in floods of tears that he rang Bennett begging him to come to Detroit. So Bennett goes, and once he's seen it, he rings his collaborator, Bob Avian, only to tell him that the show is garbage. So uh, Bennett uh, went to Crying Joe and said, no, Kipnis did what he was known for, and he started to cry. So Bennett, Michael Bennett was like, this is a bit awkward. But he said, I'm really sorry, I'm just busy, I can't, I've got other commitments. And Kipnis carried on crying and said, it was Bennett's duty to theatre and to the American musical to save this show. No. <laughs> so Bennett still managed to say no, which, I'd be, which I was quite impressed at. That was the stage where I'd have been like, okay. Kipnis finally said he'd do anything, everything, anything Bennett wanted. So Bennett only wanted one thing, which was his own show, to be a right, choreographer-director. So Bennett said if Kipnis agreed to rewrite the book, fire the director, Michael Bennett would take it on for the sole credit. So he got it. That was his first director-choreographer credit on a Broadway show. Avian said that Bennett only saw potential because he enjoyed the score. He said that anything was fixable unless the score was bad, which seems like a pretty obvious thing. So let's listen to some of this score. We're going to listen to two songs. Uh, We're going to listen to He's Good For Me, sung by Michelle Lee as Gittel Mosca in the original Broadway cast recording of Seesaw. And we're also going to listen to The Weirdest Idea 
for a tap number I've ever heard in my life. Oh, called... chapter four. Chapter four, number 1909. Uh, which... I get Hamilton vibes. Go. I love oh, yeah. it. Which is sung by Ken Howard and Tommy Cheen. So we're going to listen to both of those because, quite frankly... He's good for me But am I good for him Good enough for him How can I impress his friends Stand there like a dope And yes, his friends I'd be out of place It's also one of those songs which is very like, oh, how can I, a lowly woman, impress this man, this clever okay. man? <laughs> I think the only thing that pulls it through is that she can sing. She's yeah. got lovely pipes. That sounds creepy. She can sing. <laughs> right. And this is the weirdest tap dance. I mean, the weirdest slash greatest. Greatest. I promise you, Jerome, if you would learn that law stuff in rhythm, it would make it a lot easier. Now say that one again at this tempo. A five. A six, a five, six, seven. Duty, duty on salt. salt. That's it. A duty of one cent per yeah. bushel of 56 pounds will be collected and paid. Wait, this is the break. I see. Go, pay. Yeah. To the treasurer on all salt manufactured from brine furnished by the state from the Great Salt Spring. Break. Go. On the Onondaga Salt Springs. Reservation in the county of Onondaga in the state of New York. Break. Keep it up, Jerome. You'll know it by the end of tap class. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. In the late great state of New York, in the late great state of New York, in the county of Onondaga, in the late great state of New York, a duty on salt, the duty of one cent per bushel of 56 pounds shall be collected and paid to the treasurer. I really like that one. So I have a question for you. Okay. I'm sure you've listened to a few soundtracks. <laughs> I've been known to. Of a Tuesday. Are you able to listen to a soundtrack without having seen the play and enjoy it in, as its own art form? Because I struggle listening to a soundtrack. I think I'm quite dependent on context. Okay, Hamilton 6, uh, they're easier to, because you get the whole narrative. But yeah. I find it hard listening to a soundtrack and being like, why what happened next i enjoy listening to soundtracks of shows i haven't seen and i think obviously if i think about it i've listened to more soundtracks of musicals than i have seen musicals yeah 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 yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> can't afford to really. i've seen every single musical i've ever listened to it definitely means i have to look up what the show is about and okay, so you, fill do, in. you do previous Yeah, reading. I think I have to fill in those gaps a little bit. I think that's why this is quite interesting, because then at least I know more information. Hmm. I think also I found, like, if I listen to the soundtrack the first time, then know a bit more about the show, then I, the second time I listen to it, then I feel a bit different. Um, so, you should play in tune, just so the listeners can realise why a show is a flop. <laughs> or Spanglish. Oh. I think in tune's worse. In tune. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You thought Morris shouting was bad. So Bennett walked into the rehearsal room in Detroit and saw immediately what needed to change. And it started with Lady Kazan. So Kazan was Cy Coleman's choice for the role of Gittle Mosca. 
So Lady Kazan is best known to me as the mother in My Big Fat Greek Wedding. But before she did that, which is obviously she was a bit older then, uh, she started on Broadway and she was Barbara Streisand's understudy in Funny Girl. That's the Lady Kazan origin story. Kazan saw Seesaw as her big break. So she was going to move from this chorus understudy place to being a leading lady. The role of Gittel Mosca, her profession is she's a dancer. She's a New York cool cat dancer. The plot isn't about her working. The plot is about her social life. So there weren't any scenes where she had to dance. Like she had to dance in group numbers as you would in a musical. But she was like, I can, I can convince, convince an audience that that's what I do. When she was given the role, uh, she just had her first child. So she felt like she didn't look like a dancer. And she promised the producers that she would lose 40 pounds before opening night. Which I think is like one of those promises, like a wedding dress promise. I think just get it to fit you now and then let's wait and see. This should never be a promise you'd have to make. You can get all size dancers. Indeed. I I would argue yes. Uh, She was so confident though in her going to lose 40 pounds before opening night statement that she said that the producers could put it in her contract. No. Um, crying Joe Kipnis found this all a bit embarrassing so he didn't think it was a very gentlemanly thing to do to talk about someone's weight Good. but Michael Bennett had different thoughts he wasn't uncomfortable with it and he saw Lady Kazan and he said she's too fat dancers don't look like that so she's got to go the more I did this I started off loving Michael Bennett so much and then the more research yeah, I did for him I was like right oh, you're super problematic Michael Bennett <laughs> yeah I know this was the early 70s and the early 70s to me looks like hell on earth it's like everyone looks like a serial killer whether you're a mad woman or a child as a bit of, as a fatty myself I think this pisses me off so much <laughs> it's rude, rude what? you're not at all my belly would disagree with you. Um, but I would just say, Google a picture of Lady Kazan in the 1970s. So much so that I'm going to show Kate one now to be like, she's not even fat. She has boobs. It's going to be depressing though, isn't it? It's going to, well, I'm going to, yeah, but that's the point. I want to depress you. Oh, you want to depress me. Good. <laughs> Excellent. I'm really glad we can spend this evening together. You're welcome. Thank you for coming in. She was in Playboy in the 1970s. She's just got boobs and they're fat. She's literally just got boobs. So not only is Michael Bennett being a bit of a douche by being like, she's too fat. Kevin Kelly is equally douchey in the biography using the phrase, there was no way Michael Bennett was going to move hefty baggage across the stage. Oh, no. And I'm like, don't talk about a person like that. Glad Cecil Flock film, the Shelley McLean. She's a dancer, but she's a failed dancer. Yeah. And she teaches children to dance. This is the thing that's the, it's the Michael Bennett show. It's like, it isn't important that she's a dancer. It just means that she does a creative job and he does a, like a proper job. Those, that's what the difference is, isn't it? It's just that they're very different people. That's the thing. So she could do literally anything. But because yeah. she's a dancer and Michael Bennett is a choreographer, he's like, well, she has to be, we have to do like dance routine. Michelle Lee, who replaced Lady Kazan isn't a dancer either she's just thinner oh no so it's 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 problematic it's really problematic so Bennett goes to crying Joe and says you've got to fire Lady Kazan and Joe Gibbons goes no I can't do that sorry I don't fire people because I just cry 
so then it went to her and because that obviously wasn't walking without a fight so reportedly once Bennett had said she was too big to play the role of a dancer she yelled what do you want me to do cut off my tits which I enjoyed we should get t-shirts Kazan left once they'd finished the Detroit run and she describes her firing from Seesaw as one of the most painful times of her life saying of Bennett he was so devoid of humanity so very very cruel it was borderline sadomasochism something dancers have when they could turn directors it cost me it cost me I feel so bad for her yeah absolutely um Bennett fired in total 26 people during the Detroit run of Seesaw all over 10 stone. Yeah, literally. Anyone who wasn't... In a weigh-in. Stick oh. in, you're out of here. I think his thinking was, if he had to be ruthless and cruel to make Seesaw into something that wouldn't ruin his reputation, he would be as ruthless and cruel as it took. I think he just was so determined that he couldn't have his first outing as a director-choreographer not be good. Uh, which obviously, given the nature of this podcast, we sort of know where we're headed. <laughs> so one of the main players to leave the show in Detroit was the book writer, Michael Stewart. So at first, Stewart and Bennett worked okay together. But then as Bennett started to suggest things, Stewart thought was crossing a line. He was expecting line tweaks, whereas this was basically a whole rewriting of the book. So in Stewart's eyes, Bennett was this kid who had no big shows to his name, no this was his first gig as a director anyway and he was telling him michael stewart who wrote freaking hello dolly how to write a book for a musical so stewart put his foot down and bennett basically gave zero fucks he was like it's my show now ask the producers and the producers were like yeah it's, it's his show now michael stewart quit and took his credit with him do we know how much the play changed after he left yeah so apparently he basically like rewrote the entire book this was the thing about Michael Bennett. He just, people had to keep up with him because he worked crazy fast. Like they only had like two weeks in Detroit and then what, like two weeks? It was a month, maybe. A month he was on the show. Your mate, Robin Wagner, just redesigned the set. He said, you've got to change it. It's got to be like, get rid of that set. We'll build a new set. Which you're like, no, no one has time for that now. Instead of getting somebody else on board, another writer, Michael Bennett decided to sit down and write the book. So in yeah. his own words, in his own very modest words, he said... Darling, I've done dances for everybody. Directed Kate and Seda, directed with Hal, and now it was time to write. Perhaps not like Molière, but we'll see. Why would you want a musical book to be like Molière? It seems like the worst analogy in the world. <laughs> Bennett consulted with Neil Simon, who he would also call in to lighten up a chorus line, because people felt like when they originally saw Chorus Line, they were like, this is quite depressing. Could you maybe put some jokes in? Neil Simon's advice was that Bennett could write it if he had a process in Neil Simon's words, rather than writing from some deep, indefinable talent. <laughs> Seesaw got to Broadway with a vastly different cast and production team, and the programme read, written, directed, and choreographed by Michael Bennett. Right, theme tune, sing the theme tune. <laughs> if he could have starred as Gietel Mosca, he would have done. He would have done. So the first preview at the Eurus Theatre was snappy, but was met with lukewarm audience responses. One of the members of the audience was Michael Stewart who stormed out of the theatre during the curtain call, telling anyone he met, they've ruined it, totally destroyed it, it was never meant to be this kind of show, it's awful. So despite its rocky journey, Cecil opened on the 18th of March, 1973, to standing ovations and positive reviews. The New York Times called it the best musical of the season, 
But the next day, in floods of tears, Joe Kipnis nailed a closing notice to the bulletin board backstage at the theatre. Why? Why? But the the reviews were so good. There was no money left, not a single cent. So Kipnis and Cashew didn't have any budget to publicise their amazing reviews. They couldn't do any newspaper ads, they couldn't do any television spots, which meant no cues at the box office. Seesaw had started out with a $750,000 budget, which is still crazy big, and had gone over by $400,000, which included $200,000 of changes from Bennett when he came on board, and a weekly check of $3,000 to Lady Kazan because she been unfairly dismissed because joe kipnis had never put in her contract that thing about losing weight if he had she would have had grounds to be fired because she hadn't lost the weight in time but because he didn't she was unfairly dismissed and they had to keep paying her so psychom and dorothy fields larry kasher and weirdly michael stewart who'd quit had been splitting the three thousand dollar paycheck between them to keep the show afloat so rather than taking it out of the show four members of the production team were like, okay, I'll chip in $750. Oh, God. But Michael Bennett was like, nope, this is not the end. I can't, we can't die like this. We're not dying after like two shows and closing. No. <laughs> so with help from the composers and from, the produ- and from Larry Kasher, one half of the producing team, they started begging and borrowing money in order to be able to publicise the show. So Dorothy Fields herself, who wrote the lyrics, put in $30,000. Uh, and they managed to it. get Tommy Tune and his 11 o'clock number about the magic of New York City on the telly. Now, Tommy Tune was put in, this was a character that was put in entirely by Bennett. So there's like, um, there's a choreographer character who's a friend of Gittle in the show. And he has one of the biggest numbers, which is all like, done with balloons it's a song called not where you start it's where you finish that was put on television and the struggling box office started to tread water until the show was given the news that they would have to transfer to the mark hellinger theater the Eurus theater wanted to put something else on there now a building transfers we know is difficult for super solid shows but with a rocky show it's near impossible so the move proved too much for seesaw and it eventually closed after 296 performances it wasn't quite the end of the road for seesaw it did have a really good u.s tour after that which was very successful and it was also nominated for seven tony awards so bennett would win his third tony for best choreography and tommy Chu would win his first of what currently stands at 10 tonys tommy Chu has 10 too many he won it for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Pretty impressive, seeing as the role didn't exist a month before Broadway. And that's the end of my Seesaw story. Any thoughts? Watch the film. I quite like it. It sounds quite a bit like a second Sweet Charity. Not as good as Sweet Charity, but like you can definitely hear that it's by those people. I think it also has... I was thinking when we listened to Chapter 4, so I think it sounds a lot like The Music Man. I was also getting lots of thoroughly modern Millie's I don't know I feel like it does have potential maybe it was like the wrong people put together I don't think Michael Bennett's good for it you've muddied quite a simple beautiful plot that's the important thing isn't it is that the play takes place entirely in their apartments like it doesn't go anywhere it's just about them and so the weird thing to do is to be like oh okay well the way we'll broaden this out is to make it about a city as well like you said those are two very different things they're both valid things but maybe not put together okay so we're in 1973 
me take you back. And then over the next couple of years, Michael Bennett will create one of the best musicals known to man, in my opinion. But I will say, after you've watched Camp, which I know you're going to watch from my previous recommendation. Already forgotten, but I'm back on team. (laughs) (laughs) I'll write you a memo at the end. Be like, these are all the things I told you about. Then I would say watch Every Little Step, which is a documentary about casting the chorus line Broadway Revival. And you can send me a thank you card later for all my good recommendations. Wonderful, will do. A Chorus Line is one of the most successful Broadway musicals ever. The original Broadway production of A Chorus Line ran for 6,137 performances, which made it the longest running show in Broadway history until Cats. And it started off life at the Public Theatre, which is a non-profit theatre, off-Broadway theatre in New York, which I love, which was produced by Joe Papp. And that started a relationship between Michael Bennett and Joe Papp. He really scaled back and he really... Honed it. Created, yeah, created something that he wanted to create out of love rather than having to pay the bills. And I think that really shows... It was nominated for 12 Tony Awards and won nine. It also won a Pulitzer. The other things that happened during the time of A Chorus Line were that Michael Bennett became a lot more dependent on drink and drugs. Michael Bennett had quite strong feelings of paranoia. That was something that plagued him a lot. He thought a lot of people were out to get him. A lot of people didn't want him to succeed. This was also a time when he had his brief marriage to Donna McKickney. His marriage was quite difficult. I think they both felt like they were this golden couple so therefore had to get married and that's not obviously a great basis for getting married just because you work super well together. But apparently he said to her just before they got divorced that he resented her for loving him too much which I think is one of those. And then he also bought an entire building on Broadway called 890 Broadway. Um, And he bought it in the idea that he loved the public so much, he wanted there to be a building where people could go and workshop and create musical theatre without having to feel the pressure of it going to Broadway or it being for something he just wanted to make this space for creatives which i think is is amazing and i think he uh, he got lots of designers to have their studios there so they could have somewhere to work rather than having to work in their bedroom um, that's a lovely response from a young obviously a young man for all his ego he does have this reputation of really passing on shows to other people and saying, oh, actually, that person's really good. And a lot of his co-choreographers, he often had co-choreographers because he was directing as well. And a lot of them go on to do great stuff because he would say, I can't do that show, but you should ask so-and-so because they're good. So I think he was generous in that way and definitely wanted people to have maybe to have experiences that he didn't. Maybe he didn't want people to feel like they had to go and be a fixer to be able to feel like they could do their own Well, maybe he thought there shouldn't be a fixer, you should just get the right people first time. He bought this building against the, which is a very lovely idea, but buying a building on Broadway, like an eight-storey building, everybody advised him not to, how does it make money? And he was like, ah, money money. Nice in theory, bad in practice. There is also a rumour that Michael Bennett and Tommy Two have the same accountant and the only way Michael Bennett stayed non-bankrupt was his accountant took money from Tommy Toon's account and put it into Michael Bennett's account without telling Tommy Toon. To which I'm like, that's a terrible, that's a good accountant for one person and a terrible accountant for the other. They do that? Because I need to change that allowed? I'll go to I that accountant. To, I'll take some of Tommy to, Toon's money. I need to get an accountant. <laughs> yeah, what's an accountant? 
There was the building, there was the marriage, there was the paranoia. The paranoia, Michael Bennett's father had some very tenuous links to the mafia. And this, in Michael Bennett's head, manifested itself in him thinking that the mafia owned him. Like his, he, he believed that his father had sold him to the mafia. It's obviously something that's quite in his head, but it also has some links in reality. So it's quite a weird like little rabbit hole to delve down with. But it's another thing that adds to the Michael Bennett story of why, when we get into our show, the show that happened after Chorus Line was Ballroom. He said that he wanted to do his own thing after Chorus Line. He wanted to do something in the same way that Chorus Line was completely his idea and no one asked him to do it. It was just something he came up with. So he went to Joe Papp and said, I want to do this Broadway show. And Joe Papp said no, because the public wouldn't give the money to it just to go straight to Broadway. It has to be a public show. A Chorus Line is still partly owned by the public, so gets royalties from it. And then Bernie Jacobs, who was also sort of Michael Bennett's mentor, said, I'll produce it. But Michael Bennett said, no, I want to do this thing on my own. I'm going to raise the money. I'm going to solely produce it by myself. I'm going to raise all the money. He decided he needed $1.5 million to do ballroom. He said, I'm 35 years old now and I'm Michael Bennett. I didn't want to have to go to a room full of investors and then have to put up with their suggestions. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to hassle over budgets. I'm not extravagant but I am indulgent of talent and talent costs money. So with the help of Bernie Jacobs and the Schubert organization, I sat down and I figured out how I could own Ballroom. I got $1.5 million from Morgan Gantry by signing them over everything I had. So he basically like put up 819 Broadway just for a bank loan. So it was like a bank was rolling a Broadway show. Ballroom is based off a TV film called Queens of the Stardust Ballroom which was written by Jerome Cass, who would write the book for the musical as well. Billy Goldberg wrote the music. He was predominantly a TV and film composer. So he wrote for Columbo, also wrote for Kojak. Also. Oh. And he, he did should that. have done as a musical. Uh, he also did the Steven Spielberg film, Jewel. And Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who wrote the lyrics, similarly were mainly film score and like easy listening music lyricists. So their work includes the song Nice and Easy for Frank Sinatra. And also the lyrics for the film Yentl. Oh, stop it. Let's talk about Yentl. And they won an Oscar for Best Original Song for Windmills in My Mind from the Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, everything's so far winning. You wouldn't... Yeah, I mean, they're good. Okay, well, I have a real soft spot for ballroom, so I feel like we're going to fall I, out. I, so. No, 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 no. I am a big fan of ballroom. Okay, good. It's okay, just, good. I wouldn't have said TV, catchy, pop tunes, cue uh, subject matter. The plot of ballroom is really simple. It is about a widow called B, who, to pass the time and to get over the death of her husband, goes to a local ballroom, social ballroom. The Stardust Ballroom, which is where it's set, is where she meets Al, who is a postman, but a married postman. (gasps) Uh, And they fall in love. And the plot is basically about them and their sort of affair. and, and And that's it, really. That's all the plot is. Nearly the entire cast is made up of people over the age of 45. Michael Bennett said it himself. He said he he sort of saw this as a next stage on from Chorus Line. So Chorus Line is about all these dancers who have been auditioning for years and still are just at that stage of the chorus and that's where they'll be and they're gypsies and that's their life. And he just saw this as the next stage of like, just because you're a dancer and you get older doesn't mean you don't stop dancing. 
yeah. and loving I've books. Got, that's really lovely. I never thought of them as bookends. But yeah, that's yeah, perfect. Think, as soon as you... He really, I think he really loved dancers and wanted to give them as many opportunities to work as possible. So I guess he saw it as like this, you can go into chorus line and then you can go into ballroom and do that and be in that show. I watched the original film without giving anything away, Zoe. I was bereft at it. And I had also read the Wikipedia of like the plot line. I hadn't prepared myself for the heartbreak that the TV drama, and it's interesting that the shiny musical didn't <laughs> prep me for this. The casting of Ballroom, it wasn't tricky, but it was different from just casting a show where you could be like, oh, well, we'll have this star and then we'll have all these young like ensemble members because that, there, were, there weren't those roles. So for the character of B, he originally wanted to cast Dolores Gray, who I believe was in, I think he'd worked with in Follies. Somebody who really wanted the role was Dorothy Luden, who was currently on Broadway in Annie. She was the original Miss Hannigan, Hannigan. she won a Tony for. Michael Bennett wanted to do workshopping of Ballroom before he started rehearsal, so he wasn't willing to cast anybody who was already in a show. He wanted somebody who he could just completely work with the whole time. There's this story where Dorothy Ludon meets Dolores Gray at a party, and she was complaining about how hard it was working with Michael Bennett doing this workshop. She was like, oh, it's just a fucking nightmare. And Dorothy Ludon says, this is her quote, she was there complaining bitterly about how hard it all was. And I was so furious because I thought, you son of a bitch, you cunt. Oh God, how can you? She hated everything, all of it. The first thing I said to her was congratulations. And she just started. I was with my friends at the Hallorhands and I was like, get me out of here. Get me away from this woman or I'll kill her. And I was like, that is devotion to a part that you haven't got on a... And also beautifully <laughs> honest. Yeah, no polite <laughs> smiles and taps. <clears throat> Dorothy Ludon's agent found out that there was a get-out clause in her Annie contract so she could leave and she went and read and danced and sang for Michael Bennett and Michael Bennett, Bennett was like yes get her out of that Annie show get her into ballroom for the role of Al Michael Bennett cast uh, Vincent Gardiner who I know as Mr Mushnick in the Little Shop of Horrors film but what I didn't know is he is a character actor he is not a musical theatre guy he's not a singer not a dancer he's never played a leading man when he gets cast in ballroom he's always like the he's like the mitch in or the mr mushnick i don't know why i went mitch from streetcar named desire so but bennett really liked his realism bennett was bennett knew this he wasn't like surprised about this when he cast him but he was working with him and working with him and he just wasn't getting any better he just literally couldn't do it Vince Gardiner was like, well, I'll leave. Like, you can't do the show and have me in it and me ruin the show because I can't dance. And Michael Bennett was like, no, 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 give, like, give me the weekend and come back on Monday and we'll, we'll start again. And when he came back on Monday, what Michael Bennett had done is he'd got some of his designers in 890 Broadway to basically do like an immersive theatre. They'd made the Stardust Ballroom in one of their rehearsal rooms. They'd put a bar in and it's sort of like a nice idea, but it's also quite sleazy. And I was like, Michael Bennett says to some of the younger girls who are practicing rehearsing stuff in the building says can you just go in there for like three hours and just like talk to Vincent Gardina and like have a dance like have a dance like you would at a bar not anything choreographed so they did this every day for two weeks and then like every afternoon they'd rehearse the show and Michael Bennett would be like just do it like when you do it in there like you're not doing it for anything you're just doing it because it's fun and you're having fun 
and then he was like and then I got it then I could do it on stage I wasn't scared anymore because I was like oh I'll just do it like that it worked yeah oh so he went full inspirational coach on him yeah um, but oh, like okay. it's so weird to me that that's the person who like in company throws chairs at Elaine Stritch because Elaine Stritch is like I can't do that step and he's like no you have to it's the same to like I mean to me it smacks a little bit of that sort of like misogyny kind of I'll ease him through with some sexy ladies and some booze but that woman old woman I'm gonna fucking tear the the house apart (laughs) but I think it's interesting to see that maybe it isn't that maybe he has learned because that was obviously in the past like maybe he has found out that that's not how you get the best out of everybody by just yelling at them so the weird thing about the ballroom soundtrack is it is only sung by four people so dorothy ludon as b has five numbers of her own one of which vincent gardina sings in a little bit then all the other numbers are either totally instrumental or they're sung by two these two roles which are non-speaking roles but singing roles of the stardust ballroom singers Oh, okay. So I think that makes it quite a weird musical because that's not really a musical. There, there's no like chorus numbers. There's no kind it's a of dance musical. Yeah, it's a dance musical, which I, I don't think I really know, but weird to have five solo songs by this one woman. So it's a very weird thing to listen to. Not very many of the songs advance plot, and a lot of it's just, and this is where they cha cha. The 11 o'clock number, which is Dorothy Ludon as B singing 50% from the original ballroom Broadway cast recording. So I don't share his name. So I don't wear his ring. So there's no piece of paper saying that he's mine. thinking about 50% is I feel like it's like a poor man's too many mornings from Follies oh right yeah I feel like it's a good storytelling song it tells you a lot about what that character feels so spoilers the end of the musical is that she decides that some sort of relationship with Alfred is better than nothing uh the end of the film she dies he goes in to see her and she's there with a little crown beside her. And she doesn't wake up. Things I, weren't, I wasn't prepared for, for a Sunday afternoon film. The, the argument for that, for the Broadway musical, was that was too... Michael Bennett didn't like that idea that it looks like a punishment. It looks like she has to die because she's had this extramarital affair. And he was like, that's not... I'm not okay with that. I don't think that's how life works. She reaches closure in the film, like, halfway through. Because she starts, she's quite open about it. Yeah. 
so in the film he doesn't it doesn't feel like that ever it feels like she's finally got she's finally her own person and then all of a sudden she dies whereas the musical feels the, the thing i got as well from the film is just saying that like it's unfortunately bad timing because they are older yeah, yeah like yeah part of the life thing is that of course these things can happen later in life and you can have this big romantic affair of your life in all stages of it but it yeah. is bad luck if it happens when you're older she's not that old in the film she's really not i say she's this really i'm talking young. like they're 80 and they're not they're <laughs> like super young <laughs> like if you i also that's another thing i think about this show though because i look at the photos and the 70s are not a good period for making people look younger. Those 45-year-olds look 70 <laughs> in yeah. their awful no, polyester. Button waves. <laughs> like, oh, it's just awful. I do feel like if you did ballroom set now, it would feel so much better. I feel like it's, I f yeah, I just feel like there's something in that. Harold Prince says that Michael Bennett thrives on crisis and drama. To which he was like, and that's all I saw at the ballroom out of town tryouts. Again, the main thing that Bennett thought there were problems with was the book. Um, the book writer, Jerome Cass, who also wrote the TV film. Michael Bennett said to Jerome Cass early on, be prepared for me to get somebody else involved to do some changes. He said, you know, like Neil Simon came in and did the jokes for Chorus Line. I might get someone else in to do bits of script work on your script which i think is quite a weird thing to say to somebody at the beginning be like just assume that i'm gonna get someone in a writer called norman lear um came in to discuss the problems with the book which apparently also the composers thought there was problems with the book so poor jerome cass is being like from all angles everyone's like you're the problem with this show and he's like but it's i wrote the thing. film like it's <laughs> my idea you're the problems and they had a meeting all four of them so norman lear the, and alan and Mar um, Marilyn Bergman and Norman Lear recorded it on tape and every time Jerome Cass would start to speak he'd turn the tape off then when Jerome Cass was finished he'd turn the tape back on and he, poor Jerome Cass is like I was hurt by that and I was like damn right you were hurt by that like that's so fucking rude he went back he went to LA to do some more of his divorce stuff to which Michael Bennett said you see why the theatre is mostly gays the straights always have to worry about their families. And I'm like, gays have families too, Michael Bennett. So well, see all that good work he did on 98th and Broadway. It's all come crashing know, down now. Thing, it's like, stop fat shaming and being mean to poor Jerome Cass, who just wrote a nice story and just wants to get on with it. While he was in LA, he got a phone call from Michael Bennett saying that he was going to rewrite the show. As Jerome Cass said, he was like, but you're rewriting my show, my television script, my play, my idea. He said, Michael, am I out of the show? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm just going to get him to write some jokes. Jerome Cass comes back from LA, goes into the rehearsal room, and he said, when I got back, I went to a rehearsal, I couldn't take it. It was full of awful jokes about old ladies buying dog food to save money for their dresses at the Stardust Ballroom. I couldn't possibly go back to another rehearsal. So then Jerome Cass sort of never is involved in the show. Again, he goes to the first night because his wife says he should be there and that it was, you know, he shouldn't, he should support the cast and stuff. But I think... Again, Michael Bennett does this sort of thing where he, he completely changes the book. And I can kind of see, like, those characters, they're not there as the butt of the joke. It's a, it's they're a there love as for that. the stars of the show. And they should, yeah, it's they should be. It's the love of that time of life, not, it's not yeah. a negative. So 
I can see why that would be a problem. And then also that it becomes very difficult for an audience because if you go to a show where they are like dances for anyone, no matter what age, but then you're also being fed all these lines about aren't old people silly. I don't think you as an audience know where to go. So basically ballroom opens on December 14th, 1978. And the reviews are very average. I mean, like I said, I think it's always going to be difficult because it's the thing that comes after Chorus Line and that's what a lot of the reviews comment on. Sorry, also missed out the most heartbreaking thing is that Michael Bennett's dad comes to opening night and he says, it's a good show, but it's no Chorus Line. Oh. Oh, parents, you're the worst. The New York Times said, Ballroom, which opened last night at the Majestic Theatre, has remarkably little going for it. It has the lovely authenticity of Dorothy Ludon, who gets no particular chance to shine as a performer, but makes up for it as an actress, giving decency and charm to a fakery and banal role. It has the benevolent, if generally inactive, presence of Victor Gardenia as her geriatric lover. It's a sort of sad petering off for Ballroom. It ran for 116 performances. It definitely didn't make back its $1.5 million budget. It was nominated for Tony's. Uh, Michael Bennett won for Best Choreography again. Michael Bennett was hit very hard by the failure of Ballroom and he didn't make another show for three years after Ballroom closed because he felt very broken by that. He lost 890 Broadway as the building. It was repossessed from him because, as people said, although a nice idea, bad investment. He was very innovative. He started a lot of new things. Um the the contract that equity has for actors to work through workshopping of musicals or plays is all due to michael bennett due to michael bennett's work on ballroom weirdly because there was no contract in place for when they worked on a chorus line which created uh, various arguments and resentments through the ownership of that show and so because he wanted to use the same process for ballroom a lot more workshopping him and between him and equity they um sat in a room overnight and worked out a contract to how you pay actors for workshopping without bankrupting a show budget and that's still the contract that they use today okay so last question um what was your favorite least successful michael bennett musical i think i like ballroom i love uh, seesaw but i love the play yeah. and i think that's I, I, there's no point to touch it it was great as a play it should stay as a play or even a film goodbye ballroom i can see why it was chosen by a choreographer watching the film you can see like actually there's so much more potential i would also choose ballroom um i genuinely think that if you had like the music of ballroom with the tv film script yeah you'd have like a dynamite show especially on the story and the idea behind Borum, I really love it. And I don't think you see enough of that in plays, in musicals generally. I don't think you see enough of life past 40. Yeah. We talk a lot about the stories you don't hear. And you really don't hear the stories of older people. We're still led to believe a little bit that life stops at a certain age. Um, okay, we're done. Thank you. Thanks. You're dismissed. <laughs> so, yes, thank you to anyone listening and thank you very much for being patient for this episode i know it's a bit haphazard when they are made available but like i said i promise to be better i would ask you 
one favor which would be please could you give us a review on apple podcasts it really helps with getting out there to other people if you can't deal with that give us a like give us a share on instagram or twitter next episode we will be talking about Stephen Sondheim who we also talked about briefly in this episode I think that will always be the case we'll also always roughly talk about someone and I will be joined by the very lovely Ellie Meacham yeah I promise I won't be there I'm sorry everyone (laughs) I think most people are sorry they're like could you just stick with this one they seem to have good fans they always talk over each other we can't hear either Give me more, more, give me more of the same. Give me, give me, give me.